a confused mind always says no. If you go to an executive and you somehow make your story so confusing or so unfocused that they lose the thread, you lost everything. They're, they're not following. Their mind just shut off. And so it becomes a really, a, a real tight balancing act. How do you tell a story in sufficient detail that you keep them captivated and everything so that they can follow along and they don't get confused? I think our goal as CISOs is to remove confusion. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Tom August, a CISO and 30-year industry veteran. Tom was an accounting intern when a chance introduction to John McAfee jump-started his security career. After witnessing the precursor to a major breach, writing the CISO handbook, and developing a risk management methodology, Tom joins us to explain all of what he learned along the way. A successful security leader isn't just a technical problem solver, they're a storyteller. So how can a CISO avoid fear-mongering and buzzwords, but still keep executives captivated? What is the difference between risk management and compliance? And how can you navigate hard conversations when the broader organization isn't willing to listen? So, Tom, uh, thank you so much for being here today. If you would, for the uninitiated, please uh, introduce yourself. Sure. And thank you, Steve. It's a real honor to be on the podcast. My name is Tom August. I've spent almost 30 years working with organizations of pretty much every shape and size across multiple industries, including military defense, financial services, consumer electronics, and healthcare. I spent the last decade building and managing information security programs for small and medium-sized healthcare systems across California. So we've got a ton of detail to get into, but at the highest of levels, how did you get your start going way back? I know you were interested in technology at a very young age, but for the listener who might not know you, how did you get your start kind of on this path of technician, security leader, executive? Yeah, I have a weird background. I think if you talk to security professionals, you always find they have a very unique way of getting to how they got there. It's not like being a CFO where there's almost a recipe that you follow. I think with CISOs and information security professionals, there's a wide variety of backgrounds. Mine's no different. My dad was an engineer, so I just grew up breaking stuff and putting it back together. Fast forward to college, I have an accounting degree. I started out as an accountant. So I had an intern up in Los Angeles where I worked for a big grocery conglomerate doing journal entries and quarterly financial analyses and all that other fun accounting stuff. And one day our fledgling little Novell network got knocked offline and no one knew what happened. All we know is the IT folks came in and uh, were saying, hey, there's music coming out of the speakers. Can someone help? So the company hired a fledgling company called McAfee and Associates, a brand new company, and they were down the street. So they came over and helped us out. And since I was cheap labor as an accounting intern, they threw me at the problem. So I got to learn right there and from John McAfee and his team directly how viruses worked. And that just, it was life-changing. That was the coolest thing ever. 
I didn't know there was a career in it at the time, but I definitely filed it away like, hey, that's neat. That's fun. It's interesting. And they, they showed me how, you know, I've read binders and binders and binders about how viruses worked, how they installed themselves into software, how they took things over, what their payloads were and all that. So that's kind of how I got the original introduction into the world of cybersecurity. Fast forward, uh, I got my CPA license working in the big four, doing mostly financial audits, but I did get corrupted to the dark side where I was offered a, an opportunity to work in IT audit. So shifting from financial to IT, and that just changed my entire career trajectory. Started off general, kind of the general stuff, financial audit support and IT controls, kind of the more broad things, but started to specialize because I had a real niche for breaking things, right? Having a dad for an engineer kind of helped. So I got into vulnerability scanning and pen testing and much more technical type of audit and assessment functions. And that transitioned into more consultative work, like building out security program policies and governance designs and things like that. So I did that for a few years and then went into private industry. So a lot of things there to unpack, but I want to take it back as a college intern. You said that was sort of a, a pivotal moment where John McAfee and his team were there to help to sort of solve this problem. What was your take on watching them work? Did it feel like that they had a plan? a response plan when they show up and was there something that they were going to do that was well rehearsed or did you feel like they were just sort of smart people trying to do smart things? Which of the two buckets did it fall into from your perception as an intern? That's a great question. Wow, that goes back. It seemed pretty organized. They had a methodology. They had a plan. Their thing was to first inventory all the computers and then all the floppy diskettes. That was like job one. That was kind of the first task I was given, but I was given tasks very clearly. They kind of knew how to use me as their support. So I went out, gathered all the floppies, and then we started scanning them methodically with their software and stuff. So it seemed to be pretty organized. Did you have an opinion on John as a personality who, obviously he's always kind of been a big personality and especially later in life, but at that point in time, if he was on site, did you was he actually there, and did you have a perspective on on him? Did, did, his, did his personality also sort of lead to your perspective on, hey, this is something that's interesting that I might want to do? I talked to him on the phone a couple of times. He had another person that was directly on site that I worked directly with. I know, he was always good to me. They were all good to me. I was eager and friendly and interested, and you know, they kind of took me under their wing in that, in that standpoint. But that was pretty much it. I, I was, you know, I was kind of a, a wide-eyed college student that was a little over his head at the time. Like, what is all this stuff? So that that was a little bit overwhelming. But I just ate it up because it was new and interesting and sure beat all the regular accounting stuff I was learning in school. For those listening that are maybe a bit younger, a bit newer to the field, much of modern day IT, or at least IT education, came from accounting information systems, typically a derivative of the accountants or the accounting departments. There was sort of the introduction of, of IT, quote unquote. And so many of the scholastic pursuits came out of, they were early IT support was typically attached to or a derivative from 
accounting. Now, some people today don't know that because you wouldn't, but that's that's an interesting sort of introduction in this case, Tom, because if you hadn't have been in that role or studying what you had, you might not have made, you might have missed that kind of moment to discover this new route. Would you, do you agree to that? Completely. If you look at how business is run, all the decision-making, that was computerized early on, and the decision-making is really numbers. That's coming from the finance and the accounting folks. So the majority of business decision-making was on the old mainframes and then eventually onto networked computers and then everything that it is today. So you're on this journey. You go from accountant to you know, CPA, IT audit, then you move into more technical assessments, scanning, pen testing. You move to private industry. I know you went into what is ultimately the music publishing sort of vertical, and then you went into financial services. What was the move there going into financial services? I know you, in an earlier conversation, you said there was kind of a an emphasis, some mentorship on better communication to executives. Take us through that. What was that? Who helped you with that? And what was sort of the lesson learned in that transition in this sort of winding career? Yeah. So I went over to work at a financial organization, Pacific Life Insurance Company in Newport Beach, a wonderful organization. And I had the opportunity to help build their security program with an amazing team. I mean, as to date, one of the greatest security teams I've ever, ever seen. But it was led by a lady named Mickey Krause, who's one of my big mentors. And Mickey's one of the original CISOs. She started, she's one of the people who helped build the industry, in my, in my opinion. A lot of the early books that she authored or had edited, they led to a lot of people getting their CISSPs. So it was super, super important. And I got to learn directly from her and, and the team. So we basically built a program where there wasn't one. So it started from scratch. And eventually built out an ISO uh, 27001002 based program. So it's super neat. I got to learn directly from her, not only how to do the technical part of it, but then how to communicate that to the rest of the business, which includes, you know, updating the CFO and the other chief executives, as well as um, board reports. Now, was it in this window of time that you also decided to work on being an author as well or helping with that? Or is that, is that a similar window in time or is that later? Oh, that was right in the middle of it. Because Mickey had so many books published and I was not shy with my opinions, uh, one day she challenged me to put it out there and to get a book written. So she put me in contact with her publishing team. And then I wrote the pressy uh, of kind of what the book would be about, the overall organization of it. And I asked a couple of my good friends to help, and together we wrote the CISO handbook. Did you enjoy that? And this sound, this is a really dumb question, but did you actually enjoy, like, you've got a day job, you're doing other stuff, and then now you've got a deadline with a publisher to write out a book. While it was going on, did you enjoy it or no? That's a great question. Not really, in that it's just, it's a lot of work. And I help with a lot of the overall design and a couple of the chapters on the book. Each of us had an area that we specialized in for the book and putting it all together. It was really detail-oriented. <laughs> and working with a publisher and an editor and, and more editors and more editors, and as it goes through revisions, it's really tedious really quick. It's a lot of hard work. 
Yeah, I asked. It's a loaded question because I've I've been involved with. I have not done an entire book. I've done. Well, actually, I technically I have. Once with Sands, I did. There was a, a class, so I did the labs, the virtual machines, and one of the two books. And then I did a chapter in a a guide for board members. I did a chapter in that on incident response. But in both cases, the boardroom book was was good. It was it was a short chapter, but it was all a pain in the ass. It was a lot of fun, and it sounds cooler than it really is. So I asked, well, I think everybody should participate, and everyone should contribute at some point. I think it's a great way to to kind of get credit and develop an opinion and and share what you know. But it's largely a pain. So I asked that, asking like, like, do you natively enjoy this, or is it just you know the editing process and the timelines just killed me? So anyway, I had to ask. No, it's a slog for sure. That part of it. I think, and I really like what you just said, I think it's really important as you establish yourself as a professional to put your thoughts out there and subject them to critical review by your peers, because that way you know if what you're doing and saying actually makes sense and resonates or not. And if it doesn't, maybe there's a lesson there. But if it does, maybe there's a lesson there too, and it helps you to build confidence. Because as you put your ideas out there and they get received well, and you do get questioned and you strengthen your commitment to your ideas and you really bolster them, you develop your own professional sense and your own confidence. I think that's super important because when you walk into a boardroom in a hostile situation where there's high stress, high stakes poker, if you're not confident in your thoughts, they'll know within half a second and you'll get eaten alive. (laughs) I've been in really tense board meetings before. So I just think that's super important to put it out there and to either publish or speak at conferences or do everything you can to really get your ideas out there because it helps to develop your confidence. I absolutely agree. I think even, you know, the position I've had with Xbeam now for five years is very different than the rest of my career. One of the real benefits has been the ability to, to speak more frequently but also to even just facilitate roundtable discussions, meeting with executives, and um, how do you exchange thoughts with them? How do you ask or kind of even a provocative question that gets them thinking? And I think that leads me to my other point, that if you're going to do this, if you're going to write or you're going to present, if you catch yourself sounding like everyone else, stop, quit, reset, because you should be developing your own, it should sound, some of what you say should sound radical. If you're doing your job of asking why enough times you're going to get to the point, you're going to get to a truth that should be the cornerstone of your message that on the surface is provocative. Because people are like, that doesn't sound right. What the hell did he just say? Because the other piece of this is if you're up and you're presenting or sharing thoughts you have to be a little bit of an entertainer. You have to be able to tell a story, otherwise people are going to ignore your message. So it's getting a little more into delivery, but I think that the content, the opinion is important, and it can't be a regurgitation of some white paper you read, or you're not doing it correctly. I don't know if you've got thoughts or opinions that are an extension of that, but that, I see that often, and that's, that's a shame. 
I could talk for hours on that. I agree with everything you just said. I think one of the most important skills for a CISO, and you talk about, you know, maybe I'm jumping ahead to another topic, but I, I just think in the information security space, we basically suck at storytelling. A lot of technical folks have gotten in here and they're really factually correct, but they're not very effective in communicating. And it leads to a whole bunch of problems. You know, I think there's people that hide behind buzzwords, they hide behind acronyms, and they like to sound like they're current and trendy and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, they really don't understand the problem they're trying to solve. In our conversation prior to this, you told me about a particular moment in your career that you defined as the most interesting thing you ever did. And I think setting it up a little bit, uh, you were in a boardroom in Tokyo. You were um, a security guy and you had to deliver some bad news from the audit side to this room full of execs. And I think the interesting thing is you didn't get the response uh, despite the gravity that you were hoping for. This is a company that actually did eventually go through a breach. So I understand this is a very sensitive subject. We don't need to go into too much detail uh, or even really cover who it involves. Um, but one of the things I think we need to cover is just the importance of, of confidence and, and clear communication when you're having to deliver this type of information. This certainly sounds like a, a learning moment uh, for you. So all that in mind, looking back, is there anything you would have done differently? That is so insightful. Great questions. You're very good at what you do, by the way, Steve. I don't know that anyone could have presented that message more effectively or less effectively. No matter who presented it, you could have had Malcolm Gladwell, who, in my opinion, is one of the best presenters on the planet. You could have had him presented it and it still would have fallen on deaf ears because culturally that it wasn't the sort of message you can share in that culture. Japanese organizations, at least my understanding of them, are so protective of their, it's kind of the whole honor thing that, that goes on, but they're very, very protective of how they're perceived, especially politically in an organization like that. So anytime you bring bad news or something that they don't want to hear in any sort of public setting, you're doomed from, from go. In retrospect, and I don't know if this would have been feasible, by the way, I don't know. I don't, know how feasible this would be but if i had my druthers and could go back it would have probably been much better to do this privately with the executives rather than in a public forum like in a, in a large boardroom like this was sometimes information needs to be shared privately first kind of pre-detonated if you will before it gets brought into a public light where people are then having to react spontaneously on their feet so that would kind of be in my, in my, you know, 2020 hindsight, looking back, if there was a way to have done that politically, that probably would have been the best way to do it. So two things there. I think for the vast majority of organizations around the world, if we're going to say that findings were shared that were related to a, that were contributed to a larger problem later on and, and maybe the breach. That's one thing. If we believe that there's connectivity there, and, and I'm not saying that there was because I don't know, but for 99% of the organizations that have a problem like this, it takes a 
massive incident or a breach before the concepts and the language and the pain, the gravity is felt typically. And even those that have gone through it, there's a, there's a half-life. There's only a certain amount of time, but the sting only lasts so long. And to your point, for anyone listening, what you said as a point of reflection is 100% correct. If it's something that's combustible, you almost need to go through and share it with maybe not everyone in the, in the boardroom, but most of the, the folks one-on-one and educate them on it. Don't put them on their feet. You said publicly, and I knew what you meant, but in an open forum, I think, is the better choice. It wasn't a public display of this information. It was internal, but through a wider audience. And so that'd be my perspective or my angle, I think, on what I believe I understand. But that's a tough one. And the fact that no one around you was like, hey, we ought to get some one-on-one time also leads me to believe that they're like, I don't want a damn thing to do with this. We've got a meat grinder set up and Tom just volunteered. I can't speak to that other than I did my very best at the time. It's one of my regrets that I couldn't have somehow magically made it more effective, but it's what it is. I think the magic phrase I was told is, thank you very much. This will require further study, which is just a wonderful way of saying, you go away you go study and come back when you have an answer that I want to hear, which was just amazingly, amazingly subtle yet brutal. That's a great way. Yeah. Subtle, but brutal. So you moved on and the phrase you said to me is that you wanted to help build something from scratch to build a program from scratch. Where did you go to do that? Yeah. So I was obviously a little disillusioned. I went into healthcare because they needed good experienced people because healthcare is easy yeah well at least it was valued you know i felt like hey i'm doing work that matters so i went into healthcare and i i love it i think it's just a wonderful industry it's hard work it's definitely the the front lines on the marine corps <laughs> charging the enemy it's definitely a it's a challenge you know they're decades behind other industries when it comes to information security although it is getting better but uh, to answer your specific question I had the opportunity to take all my experience that I had, and I had recently served uh, about three years in another healthcare organization. I was brought up to John Muir Health up in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and basically worked with their executive team and built a program from scratch. That was the whole goal. They had several information security team members. That's what they were designated, but they didn't have a strategy. They didn't have really anything other than slapping band-aids and duct tape on the problem of the day. So when I came in, it was a whole different approach. And they gave me the freedom and the flexibility to actually build something, you know, kind of the right way. So super excited. So you said one of the things that you enjoyed or maybe most proud of in that window of time, typically when you start off in a new organization that maybe didn't have, you mentioned a vision. Without a vision, you typically lack a strategy. Without a strategy, you, you've typically not gone through and built capabilities that allow you to sort of understand your environment if you're in the business of security. An ingredient in that is understanding your, your risks facing different organizations, facing the things that may cause them trouble, the things that are causing them trouble. And you said that 
one of the things you built was sort of this dashboard of risks. You seem to take kind of great pride. So what, what, was, what was that? Why was that something that was so important to you? And more importantly, what did the creation of that allow you to do while you were there sort of as a lever of influence? Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, lever of influence. I like that. Because I had the opportunity to work with Mickey, I learned about the NIST 800-30 methodology, which is a real simple methodology. It's only like 30, I think it's 34 pages. For a NIST document, that's like nothing. <laughs> you know, they can be hundreds of pages. This one's really straightforward. It just says, look, what are your assets? What are your risks? What could get you in trouble? How likely are they to happen? What would be the impact if they were to happen? Do you have any controls in place to address them? And then what would the residual risk be after you apply the controls? That's really the Reader's Digest version of NIST 800-30. So taking that model and going up to the Bay Area, I took it literally and said, well, what could get us in trouble? What does the business care about? So I met with the senior leadership team one by one and individually just picked their brain. What, what are you worried about? What is it that you're most concerned about? I met with the CFO, the chief nursing officers, some folks from operations, all sorts of people within IT, including the CIO and, and others, and just met with a, a wide variety of people across the organization and got their input. And all of them had a different viewpoint. Put that together, then was briefed by the FBI because they were doing a big outreach into the community uh, and had an opportunity to meet with them and, and learn from them what they saw, you know, what they had been experiencing uh, in their um, kind of breach response that they were doing. Took all that, synthesized it together, and then worked with the leadership team to suss out, okay, th this is what we think the top risks are. Now let's start to figure out what's the likelihood that could happen here. And one of the things I did since we were such a local market, the patient mix for John Muir was pretty much the East Bay of San Francisco. So that was real easy for me. I just did a Google map of the region and drew a circle around where our patients were. And that's it. I just, I just drew a circle. And that became one of the slides because the question that I asked people when I started to talk about the risk assessment, which is this became the, the risk assessment process, is what companies are in that circle that our patients work at? And some of those companies work in very sensitive areas that could be military targets for China and Russia because they deal in stealth technologies, military technologies, AI development, things like that, things that are definitely of interest. And that really got the executive's attention because I put it in real terms. I didn't shy away from scary topics, but I didn't overwhelm them either with it. I just made it real factual. Like, look, these are the risks that we think, whether it's a theft or a loss of an asset, whether it's malware or ransomware, whether it's phishing or some other extortion attempt, you know, we, all these things that we put on there as a list of 10. And I had regulatory compliance as one of the risks, you know, because that, that is a risk. But it's just a risk. It's not the predominant focus of a program. And with that, then we said, okay, well, what is the likelihood it could happen? And, and I worked with our external auditors and we figured out, okay, this is, I had hired a big four firm to help us in the risk assessment process. And we, we've said, okay, this, this is the like, we, th we think this is the likelihood that it could happen here. Okay, well, what would happen if it did? And I met with the executive team again and we tried to figure out impacts. And this was super cool because I had the financial view from the treasury team. I had, from the accreditation team, what would it be to the joint commission? What would they think? Working with HR, what would it mean from a people and patient standpoint? What risks matter at what threshold? Do they start to really get concerned? I worked with public affairs and our media group to say, hey, 
when do you start to get concerned when things hit the news? At what level and ex- exposure um, are we really hurting and which ones do we not so care much about? And basically created a matrix of all the impacts to the business. It became kind of kind of like a, a simplistic view of an enterprise risk management risk rating scale. It's basically what that turned into. But that helped to inform all the decision making we had for prioritization. Like, okay, when does it hit one of those thresholds? Hey, we should probably look at that. The control strength we did just by looking at based on audit results that we had, either internal audits or external audits or third-party pen tests or everything else that we could bring at it or our own internal assessments we would do, meeting with people and trying to figure out what controls were there as well as did we have policies over the area? Did Were the policies trained to people or were they shared to people and were they publicly available? All those things that determine control strength. We did that and then working with the executive team, we figured out, okay, well, how much residual risk do we have? And working with our consultants, we kind of came up with our proposed matrix. And it was a one-page snapshot that shows these are the top 10 risks that could hurt us. This is the likelihood, kind of in a, in a very high, high, medium, low, very low rating scale. This is the likelihood it could happen here. This is the impact if it were to happen. Again, high, very high, medium, low, very low. Real simplistic design, what our control strength was and what a residual risk was. One-page snapshot, and you could see that is how we're assessing risk. Oh, and by the way, you can trend that time over or year over year and get a real view of how your control strength is changing over time, which we did, as well as how the residual risk is decreasing over time if you're doing the right investments. Now, it's subjective. It's not a calculus model by any, any stretch. It's, it's a definitely a subjective view of risk. But it allowed us to have a conversation that the business could understand because we weren't using fancy buzzwords or acronyms or scary thoughts. We're just speaking in common terms about real risks to the business that they help to identify and flush out and shine a flashlight at them and say, this is our current state with it. Do we want to invest more? Do we want to invest less? Do we want to hold off? Do we want to double down and really focus on one risk because it's making us a little more nervous? All of that. Uh, that was a real powerful focusing tool. What I gathered, and obviously I wasn't there a part of this, but what I gathered from all of what you shared is that you put the effort in on the front side to make sure that the output is in a currency that the recipient gets. And it sounds like this probably became the, and I I say this affectionately, but the crutch that sort of the future conversations around security or risk kind of centered around, right? You can sort of make because from this, you can prioritize effort, you can prioritize dollar, you can socialize this sort of thing with others that may be interested in the strength or lack thereof of your program, right? Outside audit, inside audit, whatever. So that's exactly right. It allowed us to speak in a language that everyone understood without using fancy terms or confusing terms. We were able to define every one of our criteria. I shared that freely within the organization. There was no surprises, no secret magic mojo of, oh, the security team thinks. No, we all thought. I mean, it was all publicly vetted, you know? And so when it came time to present to the board and senior leaders, there was no surprises here. No big shocking things, unless something changed during the year, but then I would have briefed them ahead of time anyway. So there were, again, those not a lot of surprises there, but it became a, such a real, I think, a real powerful tool for just what you said, for prioritization. It's like, hey, you know, we have other things going on right now. One of the hardest things I think security leaders have is making a good business case. 
because they don't understand when you when you're meeting with the CFO, the CFO is trying to figure out, okay, do I build a new hospital? Do I do earthquake retrofits? Do I hire more nurses? Do I pave a parking lot because we had someone trip and fall? So I might get a lawsuit on that. Do I expand signage on a building because we're not quite getting the foot traffic we want? Do I advance our radio campaign or TV campaign or ad campaign or or do I buy another practice or you know, they're weighing things that aren't security related, but are absolutely related to the health and wealth for the organization. And then here's security professionals saying, oh, well, I need a new AV program or I need a new encryption software. Okay, why? <laughs> and if they don't tell a good story and can't explain in business terms what that risk means and what that investment will gain them, I, I think they're kind of dead in the water. So yeah, it was a super powerful tool. So you you kind of led us to where I want to go. And you mentioned having a story. One of my favorite kind of questions in general is, you know, what's wrong with our industry? And there's a lot that's wrong, but you had some thoughts that begin with storytelling. And specifically, you said, you know, we sort of suck at storytelling and we're, we're really big at creating fear and confusion. Walk us through storytelling, what's wrong with it, where should we take that? And then we've got a couple others. Then we got kind of three high-level topics. Then we'll close out. Where are we with storytelling? Why do we? Why are we so bad at it in general? Yeah. Oh, I think a lot of people they want to be right, and they they want to do the right thing. I think that you know, to start off with, I think everyone's intentions are good. However, skill sets are different, and when you're learning security, and I was guilty of this too when I was starting out, but you become so focused on the facts and the technologies and the the kind of the technical risks that you miss the bigger picture. One of the benefits of my background is that I do have the financial audit CPA background, so I can put things in context a little easier than some. So when I'm meeting with the business, I can say, look, there's this thing, it's this emerging risk. I get all these other risks that you're facing. Here's how this risk fits into the bigger picture. But that's a, that's a skill that takes years to develop. And it's not something I don't think you read a book and instantly become a master at. So storytelling is really important. And I think it starts with understanding a compelling why. And that's one of the things I like to focus on. If you can explain why something is important, I believe the hows and the whens and the wheres will follow naturally as part of the discussion. But if you can't sell a compelling why, you'll never get funding or resources or because it's like, you know, who cares? So I think storytelling really comes down to what is the problem you're trying to solve and what is the outcome you're trying to achieve? Those two questions are so focusing and so powerful because you build your story around that. You clarify what the problem is. That's part of the why statement. You clarify what the problem is and you get consensus on that first. And then you look at the vision of what does good look like? What is the outcome that we want to achieve? What can we all agree would be the right outcome that we're shooting for? If you get people to buy in on, on that, you've already won the sale because they understand why it's a problem and you have a shared vision for success. Now it's just crafting a tactical plan to address it because the rest follows naturally, in my opinion. That's been my experience anyway. So I think it's super important. The other thing is, I just think because it's a technical industry, we tend to focus on technology and miss the bigger picture that people are really, really important. 
the way I learned it a long time ago is it's people, process, and technology in that order. Technology is kind of last. The people and process have to come first. So when you're telling a story about where to focus your resources, boy, I sure hope it's focused on people and process first because you can't just slap a technology on at the end and assume the people and processes are going to follow. You kind of have to build those out first and then the technology supports it. So when you go for budgeting, boy, I I think that's part of the storytelling. Hey, we've done this for education. We've done this for awareness and for policies and getting the word out there. And we've developed these processes. And oh, by the way, here's some technology that'll help make it quicker, better, faster, cheaper. And here's our budget request for it. And here's what we think the ROI might be. So that's the kind of the storytelling element from my point of view. Well, and you kind of began to flirt a bit with the second one, which is chasing the shine. But before we go there, you said something, I don't know if you pulled this from research or you just, it's a derivative of your life or what, but I completely agree with it. And it, it's, it deals with decision fatigue, which is important to understand, which gets in even the time of day that you share an idea and how you share it. There's a lot of detail. It's been quite a bit of time on this, but Uh, But it's the confused mind always says no. And that was your quote to me. This is absolutely fact. So your follow-on to that is a good CISO makes things easy to understand and relatable, actionable. But go back to the confused mind. Do you have anything you'd add to that or or kind of unpack that a little for us? Yeah, and thank you. I have like Tom's Laws of the Universe, and that's one of my, my main ones. A confused mind always says no. If you go to an executive and you somehow make your story so confusing or so unfocused that they lose the thread, you lost everything. They're they're not following. Their mind just shut off. And so it becomes a really a, a real tight balancing act. How do you tell a story in sufficient detail that you keep them captivated and everything so that they can follow along and they don't get confused. I think our goal as CISOs is to remove confusion. If you look at technology as a whole, Steve, I don't know if I've shared this with you, but this is the human mind can only adapt to change so quickly. And if you look at the history of mankind, the Stone Age lasted from about 3.4 million BC to about 6,000 BC. So the human culture, if you will, or the human civilization had about 3.4 million years to adapt to Stone Age. The Bronze Age went from 6,000 to 1,000 BC. So that's about 5,000 years that people had time to adapt to Bronze Age technologies. Iron Age came right after that. That lasted for about 1,000 years. So people could deal with the Iron Age for about 1,000 years. This is getting shorter and shorter. The Industrial Age happened around 1760. And that's lasted for about 180 years. These are major changes in mankind's development. And we've had shorter and shorter times to adapt to that. Now you get to the information age, and that started around the 1940s. We've had about 80 years to deal with that. And as a culture, that's only a couple generations. We haven't had time to really synthesize what all this means. So when we're storytelling, when we're talking about technology, just understand people haven't really culturally been able to adapt to the rate of change. The internet's only been around since what, the 80s? AI has been around technically since 1956, but I mean, it's relatively a new concept. You start throwing these around as solutions, 
you're going to blow people out of the water. They're going to be confused. They don't understand what you mean. It, it may take longer than you think to really craft that story in a way that people can really glom onto it and understand it. So a confused mind always says no. Our role as a CISO is to remove confusion, to tell a story in such a way that we can lay enough breadcrumbs for people to follow along. And I think personally, it starts with being real clear on why, what's the problem we're trying to solve, what's the outcome we're trying to achieve, and what's the path forward or a path forward of how to achieve that over a certain time period. But if you do that in a stable way where you're not injecting acronyms and buzzwords and scary, oh my God, the Russians are coming or whatever. If you don't do that, then you have a better chance of success. So that's kind of my two cents on it. Yeah, no, I think that's perfect. I, there, there's one other, actually two more points, but there's one I want you to address if you would, and then uh, we're about at time. But I think this is an important one. And I see this often. There's no sort of silver bullet for it, but it's on risks and not understanding them well enough. And we spent a lot of time earlier in the conversation kind of covering that in your view of how you built a program as an, as an example around it. But people sort of chasing compliance and only going where the auditors go that, you know, and often the auditors hate saying this are, you know, just fresh out of college and working on some workbook and their knowledge or lack thereof may not represent reality anyway. So they're, they're sort of leading the tail sort of wagging the dog in that example. How do you sort of manage that? If that is a truth and you're a CISO, how do you keep from having an auditor sort of, you know, the tail wagging the dog in that example where they're looking at things that are just obtuse and foolish and a waste of time? How do you sort of combat that? Or is there a way to when dealing especially with external audit? I'm kind of twisting it a little bit, but give us a perspective on that. Well. I'm in kind of a unique spot where I've been an external auditor for quite a period of time. So I have a good background there, both in private industry and in public accounting, as well as being a CISO at several organizations. So it definitely puts me in an interesting viewpoint. I think the auditors mean well. I really do. I think their intentions are good, but their, their focus is very limited. And part of that is professionally, they, they're forced to be limited. But they have to have a criteria to judge against. That, that's the whole point of auditing. They, they have a predefined criteria. They measure you against that criteria and they show you where you have gaps. That is the definition of audit. The criteria could be anything. But in reality, it's almost always a compliance checklist of controls. And whether it's the NIST cybersecurity framework or the 800-53 general controls that are followed by HIPAA or whatever, it's a list of controls. Well, that doesn't make sense from a risk standpoint because risk doesn't follow laws very well. In fact, the laws don't follow risk at all. If you look at HIPAA, it doesn't even contain the word ransomware and doesn't contain the word phishing. Two of the biggest threats to healthcare, it's not even addressed in HIPAA. So using a compliance framework isn't really a very good measuring stick, in my opinion. But in fairness, how do you measure risk? Is there a quantitative way to do it? And there's been, I don't know, a hundred books published from people that are trying to do that. I personally believe a qualitative measure is probably more practical, but it requires everyone being on the same page in terms of understanding what assumptions you're building into that and how you're defining terms. That's super important. So the analogy I like to give when I'm talking to auditors and, and 
basically anybody in business, is you can be driving down a road. Most of us drive or have driven in a car or been in a car, so I think everyone can relate to this. But if you drive on a, on a road, you can have your hands 10 and 2 on the wheel because that's the best practice. You can have your seatbelt on because that's the law. You can be driving the speed limit because that's the law. You have your stereo turned down because that's the best practice. You have your cell phone off and to the side because that's the best practice. You're not texting. You're not doing any of that. You're following every law and every best practice there is that you've been aware of, and you've really researched this. Light turns green, you cross the street, and you're dead because you got slammed into by a car that ran a red. Why? It's your fault because you didn't watch the road. And that's not in the law. And that's the difference, in my opinion, between risk management and compliance. Risk management is keeping your eyes open and watching the road. And looking for, hey, that guy's going really, really fast. I probably shouldn't go through the green light right now. That's a much different approach than just blindly following all the, the laws and best practices and assuming that's going to be fine. So that, that's kind of a blunt view of it, but that's kind of the, the analogy I give. I, it's funny, when I give presentations on the difference between risk and compliance, I have a slide of the 46 freeway. If you've ever driven in California, in the, in the middle of California, there's this road called Blood Alley. And it's a really, it's a really risky road. It connects the 101 and the five freeways in the middle of nowhere in, in California. And uh, it's a lot of people die on that road. It's two lane, undivided, unsupervised freeway that, that goes on. And you have military vehicles and long caravans of trucks that are, that are carrying supplies. Then you have passenger cars that are trying to get somewhere quicker, better, faster. And so they jut out at the last second and try to pass all the trucks doing so they go head on in the cars so it's a real good paradigm for risk because you can do all the legal things and be absolutely killed in that road if you're not managing risk by really watching the road and watching the drivers yeah it does and and actually i've got one more for you and we we close every show on this pursuant to the name of our show uh, the new ciso what does being a new ciso mean to you tom obviously not in a literal sense but in a philosophical sense, what does that mean to you, Tom? It's a real tough question. A CISO isn't really somebody who controls very much. They're an influencer. A good CISO, a new CISO in, in a modern age, I think, is a fantastic listener, a really good business partner, someone who's a subject matter expert. That goes without saying. They have to know their stuff. They have to know risk. And they have to know compliance. And they have to know solutions. Not all of them, but some of them. They have to know general architectures. They have to know a lot. But then be able to apply it and tell a good story about why it all matters and why security is important. Because at the end of the day, I think business leaders want to do the right thing. And we're here to coach them to get them to the right place. But we have to do it in a way that's not threatening, not insulting, not condescending. None of that it has to be very careful, very respectful, because they're weighing business decisions that information security professionals have no idea that are on the fate of the entire organization. Security is just one of a thousand risks that a CFO has to worry about in a given day. So that would be my, my two cents is, you know, really being a good listener, a good partner, someone who can collaborate with others, but still have a good subject matter expertise to be able to provide good guidance and counseling. Excellent. Thank you so much, Tom, and thank you for making time for us today. 
Steve, it's an honor. And I, I really am super grateful. I hope all the information security professionals out there, I hope there's something of value in what I said they can take and, and hopefully apply. There certainly was. And thanks again. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.